All right. Welcome to episode 76 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She's a clinical psychologist that has practiced for 26 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas. She began blogging and podcasting in 2012 to destigmatize mental illness and educate the public about therapy and treatment. Uh, with her compassion and common sense style, her work can be found at drmargaretrutherford.com, as well as HuffPost, Psych Central, Psychology Today, The Mighty, Gottman Blog, and others. She hosts a weekly podcast, The Self-Work Podcast, and her new book is called Perfectly Hidden Depression. Mas masks your depression. Sorry. Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, and is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore. Welcome, Margaret. There you go. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the best intros we've had. I've been busy. My gosh. <laughs> so, Margaret, before we begin, we just want to say we love the book. So, um, I, so I ended up getting through it this past week. Um, there's just going to be so much to talk about, obviously. I think personally, academically. Um, so, just a lot. There's a lot on my mind about sort of topics and themes and ideas that we could pick up on. But the first question I think is going to be the one that I think most people who kind of come across this book would have. So let's say, you know, most people, when they think of depression, they think of somebody who's kind of really sad all the time, somebody who, let's say, may have difficulty eating, difficulty sleeping. So somebody who's sort of clearly and obviously kind of disconnected to some extent from reality. But your book kind of in the way, right, sort of turns that concept on its head. And it says, well, no, depression can obviously or not obviously, I guess, but um, can be seen in sort of different presentations. And so from your perspective, classical depression, what I just mentioned differs from something called perfectly hidden depression. So if let's say somebody were to ask you, they would just say, you know, Margaret, what does that look like? Because um, I know what depression looks like. Depression is pretty obvious. What are sort of the telltale signs of perfectly hidden depression? How would I know that somebody's experiencing that? And even maybe as importantly, how do I know if I'm experiencing that? Okay. Well, now that's a lot more than one question. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the, the idea came to me, I was writing a, just a normal blog post about six years ago now. And I thought about some of the people that I had seen through the years who, when they walked in my door would firmly deny that they were depressed. I mean, they'd say, I've got too many blessings. Um, when I asked them about their histories, they usually would say, oh, I, I've had a great family or nothing much happened to me. In fact, I don't even know why I'm here. I feel a little weird. Uh, I've just been having some anxiety or I'm struggling with my eating or whatever it happens to be. But what I noticed and what was the telltale sign of what was going on is that all of them struggled to connect with, and what I mean by that is just feel, anything painful in the room with me. I had people literally, guys, smiling like they were in a beauty pageant, telling me about a rape or telling me about childhood abuse or telling me about, you know, any kind of loss, moving a lot, whatever. Oh, well, you know, yeah, that was in my life. But, and, and what I learned was that that inability is what keeps them so imprisoned and trapped. And as we in therapy began to unravel that, and I began to point out to them that the way they looked in the room with me and even felt in the room with me was absolutely opposite of the reality of the words they were using. I like to point out that this one man uh, 
was just, he was belly laughing. I mean, he was telling me about how his mother used to throw rocks at him and tell him he was going to be worth nothing. I mean, he was just a piece of dirt and he, he had retired and he didn't understand why he was falling apart. In fact, he was starting to drink a lot. And he was just telling me this story and laughing. And yeah, I guess I showed her because he was really successful. And I looked at him. I said, don't you have a grandson? He said, yeah. I said, so let's ask your grandson to come into my front yard of my office. And let's throw rocks at him and tell him, you know, he's not going to be worth anything. And he got this just fall and this, you know, smile fell off his face. And he said, well, no, I wouldn't do that. And I said, why not? He said, because it would hurt him. I said, right. <laughs> it's not funny what your mother did to you, but he, we had to, I had to, um, we did what together had to help him learn how to connect with those emotions. So I wrote this post called the perfectly hidden depressed person. Are you one? I just kind of pulled that out of the air. Perfectly hidden depression made sense to me. And the post went viral. I had never had a post go viral. And um, then I was writing for the Huffington post at the time and when it appeared there, I literally got hundreds of emails because I'd forgotten I'd left my email address on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was blown away and I thought, you know, what is this? And let me go find what's out there in the literature. And I found Brene Brown. For some reason, I didn't know who she was, which was, you know, I guess I was living under a rock. I don't know. But um, and I read her work. The Gifts of Imperfection is the one I read at the time. And I noticed that she stopped. Um, she stopped from saying perfectionism can be connected to depression. Perfectionism, a destructive perfectionism can actually cloak real depression. It just looks different. People, you know, you, you said some classic symptoms that you said, um, you know, melancholy or, or, you know, sleeping a lot or irritability or isolativeness, suicidal ideation. These people are going to look, they're going to feel that inwardly. Um, but they, they have learned this strategy of that part of them being cloaked and being hidden with a, because there's so much shame involved in whatever happened to them. So basically, I decided, well, if there's not a book out there, I, maybe I should write it. And I got some enthusiasm from people who had been following me for a while. And some synchronicity kind of happened in that one of the bloggers that had interviewed me for another a book that she had written. Actually, she's, she's more of an author than a blogger. She happened to work for an agent, a literary agent. <laughs> And she said, let me present your book to him. I said, you work for what? You work for an, <laughs> an agent? And so she did. He took it. Um, and after I, what, I wrote the post in April of 2014, and we published the book November of 2019. So five years later, there was a book. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Oh, so and in, in terms of um, perfectly hidden depression, right, what would be the difference between that and then the classical symptoms of it? Oh, it's, it's mostly in the presentation. In fact, I had somebody ask me one time, but is it really depression? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's not depression if you, if you stick to typical criteria, classic criteria, right. um, which are, in fact, there are two uh, symptoms that have to be present. One or both have to be present. One is a depressed, in classic depression, 
One is a depressed mood that is noticeable to others or to self and is a change in normal functioning. So basically, someone has to not look like themselves. They have to be not acting like themselves. They have to be, um, and, and the change is, is noticeable. The second one is anhedonia, meaning it is the lack of pleasure in previously pleasurable activities. Someone with perfectly hidden depression is not going to look like that. They're engaged, purposeful, hardworking, you know, the, the hardest volunteer, the, the best volunteers you could ever find, the, the guy that you want working for you in your corporation. This is the person who always remembers your birthday. It's the person that, you know, they are just full of life. And yet, um, and, they're, and they're not going to look depressed either. Nobody's going to say, are you okay? They look normal. But what is happening on the inside is that, uh, you know, for whatever, whatever their path was in getting there, be it that they were abused, that their mother threw rocks at them and told them they weren't going to amount to anything, or whether they were the star of their family. And so they learned that their accomplishments is what defines them. Or maybe they were enmeshed with a parent and they had to please that parent all the time. So they they began living a life of fulfilling other people's expectations. Maybe they grew up in a family where unpleasant things were not discussed. You were punished for being angry or sad. Um, and so you, or you grew up with alcoholic parents and you had to parent your own siblings. I mean, there are lots of ways of getting there, but what you decided unconsciously was to develop this strategy of just looking in control all the time. And so uh, because it kept you emotionally safe, whether it was your a cultural thing, a lot of my African-American patients have told me, you know, I had to look perfect or I didn't get the opportunity at all, you know, to do something or it's a, it's So it could be cultural. It could be ethnic. It could be racial. It could be um, just familial and social. So there are lots of ways of getting there. But it is people, people who have called me or volunteer, people don't call us, just, you know, kind of really, re, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? I just, uh, I guess I revealed my age. Here we go. <laughs> Somebody call me. But people will get in touch with me and say, you know, how did you figure this out? Because I don't, I, you're, you're talking exactly about what's in my head. I constantly hear this self-criticism and you're not worth anything. You have to prove yourself. Nobody would believe, nobody would care about you if they knew the real you. Um, if, if you don't do the best you can do, you won't be used again. You, you'll be seen as ineffective. I mean, these people just live with shame and self-criticism to the point where often there is suicidal ideation there, but they tell no one, absolutely no one. Um, now, some people will say and have said to me, well, how are we supposed to know what's going on with somebody if they don't talk, talk to you about it? Mm -hmm. And to me, the answer is, it's, it's kind of like when you, when you think about cancer and that for a long time, women were dying from heart attacks because their symptom profile did not look like a man's symptom profile. So they weren't told they were, that they could have um, cardiovascular disease. It wasn't until the research began coming out about female symptoms of heart attacks, of potential heart attacks, that more women were caught. So we had a lot of women dying because, or at least having heart attacks, because 
no one thought it was symptomatic of, of cardiovascular disease. I think perfectly hidden depression is a lot like that. That you have to know that there are a there's a syndrome. And I remember you said what what would this, this look like? And I'll tell you, there's a syndrome that explains what this looks like. And a syndrome is a group of behaviors or beliefs that fall together. You often find them together. And like codependence is a syndrome. It's not a diagnosis, it's a syndrome. So basically, if a clinician or a doctor or a friend or a wife or a parent knows that you know, someone can look like they're just a workaholic or a take care of everybody aholic or, you know, it's, it's, or a controlaholic. And if you realize that if these, if these criteria are, that are different from classic uh, depression criteria are present, then you may have someone who simply doesn't know how to talk to you about what's really going on with them. I cannot tell y'all how many people that I've worked with have said, I never would have told you, but when I walked in your office, I had a plan to kill myself. And, but I heard you on something on some forum and this made sense to me and I had to come talk to you about it. Uh, that's happened. And I have a, you know, a small practice in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, I've had hundreds more at this uh, time. People comment to me and say, I don't know. I can't thank you enough because I'm, I'm finally crawling out of this prison and um I've been so lonely and so despairing and I didn't know what it was. One woman looked at me. In fact, I was working with her when I wrote the book and she was so eloquent. I kept saying, do you mind if I use that? Do you mind if I use that? Um, and one day she said, you know, I got up in one night in the middle of the night and I said, I've got to figure out what's wrong. There's just something wrong. My gut tells me something's wrong. And so she looked up depression. Well, she didn't find herself there. I mean, no, 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 no. And she shut the, whatever she was looking at her laptop or whatever. And she said, I was so ashamed of myself. How dare I with all my blessings, she had a great job, great family with all my blessings. Could I possibly think I was depressed? And so actually she said, in fact, I had to struggle with that shame um, bef before I called you to set up an appointment because I just, um, I didn't want to feel that again. And I was afraid you'd look at me and go, sister, you're not depressed. Come on. You know? Um, yeah. And that happens I, often. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's so kind of, I guess, wild that that happens. So I remember when I first saw a psychiatrist, I think it was about four years ago or something along those uh -huh. lines. So just a little bit of background. So Margaret, how I found you is because perfectly hidden depression is something that I've struggled with pretty much the majority of my life. So when I found your work, I was like, yeah, like, this is amazing. Like we need to have her on the show. Like this oh, is something. Well, we Leon, thank you. You're welcome. And so um, when I came, I remember I went to see a psychiatrist four years ago. Well, first I went to see a therapist and she said, well, look, you need to see the psychiatrist at the clinic. So I come to the psychiatrist. I said, Hey, you know, it's nice to meet you. I'm kind of chatting him up. And he says, Oh, well, like, so uh, what's going on with you? And I said, well, you know, I'm experiencing depression. He's like, Oh, come on. He's like, you don't exactly. look like you're experiencing depression. And I said, look, I know I'm just a friendly person. I was like, I'm, I, you know, I'm getting to know you, I'm talking to you and I'm really kind of not as open as, you know, I would like to be. So this is sort of my way of introducing myself. And then he tells me something along the lines of, he says, well, okay. So if you had to diagnose yourself, like, what should we give you? I was like, come on, man. So like, just nothing. Oh, but yeah, at wow. the end of the 
I don't remember what advice he gave me, but at the end of the day, he said something like, um, he said, okay, look, he's like, obviously you don't need medication or anything. He's like, if anything like doesn't work out with the therapist or whatever, just come back to see me. But he's like, you seem fine. I said, okay. That is, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. And um, in fact, I had some women reach out to me in May and um, one of their friends had had killed themselves and her husband had found my book on her nightstand, which took my breath away at the time and um, still does in many instances. Um, and she had gone to a psychiatrist and he'd given her vitamins, mm. vitamins. <laughs> and so. Um, so anyway, it I. I understand the problem. I mean, nobody's a mind reader. But again, if you know this constellation of characteristics or traits or core traits, and if you find somebody, oh, wait, no, this, yes, 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 then at least ask. I, uh, you know, I was so blessed that I had about 60 interviews with people who had contacted me, you know, guys, I didn't know what this was when I first started writing about it. I, I was using my own blogs as kind of a, well, let me try this out. What does this sound like? You know, let me, let me try this questionnaire out and see what happens. And, but at the bottom of every post, I would say, if you are identifying with this, please contact me uh, anonymously and, and see if we could do an interview. Well, I, I interviewed about 60 people. And I asked all of them, did you seek help? And more than half said yes. A good two-thirds to three-quarters of those said they weren't believed. And I had one guy say to me, you know, I, the psychiatrist handed me the Beck depression inventory, which is a classic inventory for depression, and talks about all the classic symptoms. You know, do you feel hopeless? No. Do you feel like killing yourself? No. Um, and so he tried to kill himself three weeks later and the psychiatrist came to, this is in the book. You may remember it, uh, Leon and the psychiatrist came to see him surprisingly. And, um, I'm not knocking psychiatrists. It's just, that doesn't, I, I don't know what the situation was, but it seemed a little odd anyway. He said, but you were just in my office three weeks ago. And he looked at me and said, you asked me the wrong questions. If you asked me, do you feel hopeless? I'm a good, perfectly hidden depressed person. I'm going to say no. If you instead asked me, if you did feel hopeless, would you admit it? Would you reveal it? And the answer is still no. <laughs> and so that's the important question to ask. What are you feeling that you're not, you're struggling to reveal? Because again, these people fear being found out. I don't know if Leon, you felt this way. They fear the loss of status. They fear, you know, that those that shaming voice is right. Um, And so they have to confront that fear before. And it's a huge hurdle to be able to begin to let go of that persona and that facade um, and and be more open about who what they really experience and risk and learn how to connect with pain. Yeah, and I've definitely felt that way before because it almost feels like there's a sort of stigma with revealing that you have some sort of, uh, I wouldn't say mental health issue, but if let's say something's going on, you don't want to necessarily appear as if, you know, uh, you don't have everything figured out. You want to look like you're in control. Right. You want to feel like, uh, 
like you have a good head on your shoulders, especially if like, for example, you know, we're doing a podcast about, you know, psychology, philosophy, and we're trying to, you know, give good information out to people. Sometimes you don't want to admit that you could be, you know, you're a regular person too. And sometimes you may have certain feelings and you'd like to be vulnerable. Yeah. And, uh, one thing that I, I noticed, uh, which resonated with me in the book is that um, there's a sort of um, for perfectly uh, uh, hidden depression, one of the features is this sort of uh, disconnect between how somebody expresses um, what's going on inside of them. They, they may have a totally different expression for how they feel. Like they may be smiling, right? Exactly. But, but yeah, but internally, maybe something else is going on. And, um, but what's interesting to me is um, one of the things that you described is like somebody who might have a PhD, they try to, um, instead of feeling what it is that's going on inside, they may try to put it away in a box that collects dust and that doesn't get opened, right? They just put it, they stock it away somewhere else in their mind. That's that strategy I was talking about. That's right. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting is um, that that kind of resonated with me because then I was starting to think about, well, because I, I wanted to make a distinction in myself. I'm like, wait, do I have PhD or is it like just I'm connecting to something here that I used to do or... Um, what, what's interesting is somebody, uh, or rather, like, I, I know that, uh, for example, it's good to be present to the moment, to not react, to maybe um, also to feel fully, yeah, and to feel fully whatever it is that you're feeling. Um, so I don't know, I guess, how would you distinguish us healthy coping? And, sure, it's a great question. And, yeah. All of your questions are great, by the way. Thank you so much Thank for you. actually reading the book and Absolutely. I've, done some, I've done some interviews where it's so obvious that, you know, maybe <laughs> read the preface and that was it. Um, so I do appreciate it. You're um, very welcome. <laughs> it's an odd thing, but it happens. Um, you know, a lot of mental health issues are, you know, if, if you're shy or you have anxiety, you know, if it's not getting in the way of you living your life, then, okay, you have anxiety, but you don't have an anxiety disorder, okay? So it's that crossing the line between when something becomes a skill or, or something that happens to you and when something begins affecting your life in a, in a very negative way. Compartmentalization is a skill uh, to actually have something. Let's say I'd won the lottery this morning, <laughs> and and but I'm booked to come on your show, so I'm not going to pop open a bottle of Dom Perignon, whatever the nicest champagne is, and you know be a little tipsy when we do this. I'm going to compartmentalize that, right? And I'm going to say, well, I'm going to celebrate after the podcast. And so, or if my dog died, you know, I still have this to do. I have a responsibility. I have a, the pleasure of talking with the two of you. So, you know, we compartmentalize and we put aside things that happen. In, if, in order for us to get on with things and to be accomplished or be caring, or if you're a teacher or a plumber or a podcast host, whatever it is, you know, you, you want to, to live your life that day. But then what happens is that you, you pull it back out of that emotional closet of yours and you, you, you connect with it when the time is appropriate. How many times have we all had arguments for example, with a spouse or a friend or something, and you'll say, you know, we really need to talk about this again, but today I've got X, Y, and Z, and we, we pull out the conflict again when we both have time to process it, right, hopefully. Um, 
so we do this all the time and it's, it's a good thing. It's not good when it's the only coping mechanism, you know, and actually you never get the darn box out of the closet and it stays there and, um, and it just, it grows more potent. Um, and, you know, I know firsthand since I've been a therapist for a long time at this point, you know, the fear and the pain that someone has, I, I don't know how to talk about that. I, I'm so afraid that if I started crying, I would never stop. And my answer to that is I'm sure you'll cry for a long time or you will feel devastated, but I've never, I've never worked with anybody that's never been able to quit crying. So, um, so, you know, you, you have to build a tolerance for it and to develop skills to work through it piece by piece, whatever it, it is, um, whether it's the fact that you were bullied or sexually abused or a tornado ripped through your house and you lost everything or, or, or you were just reared in one of these families that no one ever talked about anything. I mean, that's, that's not abuse, but it's, it's emotional, um, just neglect. I mean, it's just kind of, it's no one talked about the way they feel. So unless it was happy and everything was fine. So, um, it's, it's like everything else, Alan. I think that it's about, uh, overusing or, um, having a a unilateral approach to something. And that unilateral approach is just don't think about it. Just don't think about it. Don't feel about it pretend like it didn't happen. And, you know, you do that for several years. Those 60 people I talked to you about, you know, um, me, many of them were talking to me in their garages or in their offices with doors locked because they didn't want anybody to know what they were telling me. And I'm talking about, I talked to one brain surgeon. I talked to a motivational speaker. Interestingly enough, I talked to people from all over, um, Actually, there were some that were from all over the world. Um, I couldn't afford the phone bill. <laughs> so um, anyway, it's, it's uh, if, if you're someone, if you're listening and you identify with this and um, there, the, you know, the message of the book, it actually, it's kind of a workbook. If you, if you guys looked at it, it's got over 60 exercises that are taken right from my own practice. Yeah, he did the journaling. Oh, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, good. Uh, number six, for example, that one threw me for a loop. Yeah, because. Okay, you know, you have to remind me. Sorry, over 60. I don't remember. Sorry. <laughs> so that's the one where you make the concentric circle starting. Yes. With the smallest, you put a dot and like how and the person's name there. And um, the small circle represents the people that are closest to you. The second mm -hmm. layer, still close, but not as close. And then other people that are not very close to you. And right. then it was interesting to me to see how many people I had in that small circle versus how many people I know and I allow to get close to. Like, that's the thing. That's one thing. I'm still trying to make this distinction too, because as I'm reading the book, I'm like, hmm. Because there's the thing about uh, caring about the well-being for others. Yes. But then you don't necessarily let yourself receive or you don't let them too much into your inner world. Like you keep people at a distance. Right, exactly. So that one is interesting because that one I resonated with uh, and I'm not sure because here's the thing I do have people in that smaller circle so that's that is important there are people it is that important. can be vulnerable with but it was eye-opening to see 
how many people I'm not that open with, mm-hmm. which it's probably fine because I think that's important to also make a distinction. Sure. I mean, but, you're not going to trust everybody and, you know, with your with the things about you that you may be um, are just hard to reveal. I mean, that's something that you have to have a pretty steady, solid relationship with someone to know that you can trust them for that. But um you know, I have to, I have to say here that plenty of people have told me they've read the book. And my next question is always, did you, do, how did you feel about the exercises? <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't do those. Um, just, can you tell me why? Oh, well, I wanted to have an intellectual understanding of it before I <laughs> did any of those. And then I've had other people go, oh, you know, I thought those first exercises were kind of easy. So I just went into for the trauma timeline and I couldn't do it. It was overwhelming. And I thought that's because you didn't do the other 40 that are in front of it <laughs> to try to help you um, guide you along. So, but what we're really talking about, I don't, I don't think we've yet really mentioned what are these core traits. So we've mentioned several of them. And let me see if I can remember them all. Obviously, there's uh, they're highly perfectionistic, but dis- uh, if I was to write the book again, I would say destructively perfectionistic mm-hmm. rather than constructively perfectionistic. Right. And there's a huge difference in that uh, because it is um, destructive perfectionism. Is a, that's hard to say. Destructive perfectionism is much harder uh on, on you because it is fueled by shame. It's not fueled by desire or process or enjoying, you know, enjoyment. It's fueled by have to and must and shoulds. There's also people who are highly responsible, who are always got their hand up in the air. I'll do it. Um, they like a lot of control. They tend to worry, but they don't want anyone to know they're worried. So, um, that's a problem. They also love to stay in their heads. They're very analytical. That's why they don't do the exercises in the book. <laughs> uh, I'm nodding right now for uh, yeah, audio. yeah, for yeah. Audio, audio. A, little, <laughs> a little smile of recognition. Um, as you were saying, Alan, these are people who uh, do not. They they're a great friend, highly engaged, but they do not let other people in. Um, the research actually shows. We've been talking a lot about this. These people. Um, they can ident- they can describe emotions. They can say or painful emotions. They can say, um, yes, my my mother was diagnosed with cancer and I'm I'm very concerned about it. I'm really sad about it, worried about it. But then if you're in the room with them and you say, Well, you know, if you ever need to talk about that, I'm I'm here for you, they'll go, oh, nah. I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. They can't, they stay away. They withdraw from actually um, connecting or letting those emotions show. They also very much deny or discount any kind of trauma in their lives. I.e., the guy with the rock throwing mother uh, is a perfect example. Uh, I've heard some horrific things be discounted. Um, they also are. Uh, this was important to me as a clinician. It's kind of stuck in there. Some people go, well, why is this in there? Because it was important to me. I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to ethically say to people, oh, you have perfectly hidden depression. And that's what's all that's, that's all that's wrong with you. One, it's not a diagnosis. Two, 
there can be concurrent things going on. You can have obsessive compulsive disorder. You can have panic disorder. You can have an eating disorder, very common. You can have problems with alcohol or, or drugs because you're trying to escape, you know, from those feelings that you don't want to feel. Um, so there can be ongoing problems um, and you can still identify with perfectly kid depression. It's, it's, it's kind of can be entangled in a lot of things. These are people who count their blessings a lot. And um, what I mean by that is, I think that's a good thing to do. I think being grateful and having an, and what is that old attitude of gratitude is a good thing. But the point is, these people will not talk about, will not admit to themselves that there are, that each blessing has an underbelly, meaning, um, let's say you always wanted a big family and you were blessed with four children. That's great. That's still four homework assignments, for lunches to pack, for people to buy clothes for, <laughs> you know, that's a lot of, uh, I mean, that may be exactly what you wanted in your life, but sometimes it's hard. And so, you know, but they will say, oh, you know, I can't feel that because I'm supposed to be happy. I have this large family. And then the last one is, and it's probably one that is, um, uh, makes a lot of common sense is these people are often very, very professionally successful. We love a perfectionist. I had cataract surgery last month and the guy says, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And I said, well, good, <laughs> you know, I have two eyes and that's it. So I want you to be a perfectionist. Um, so th they are very professionally successful. However, they, um, their ability to have emotional intimacy is limited. And I, I didn't talk about this very well in the book either. You know, I, I knew it'd be an imperfect book, um, but it, um, they tend to gravitate toward people in their lives who are either narcissistic and want somebody who's really overly responsible or someone who's an underfunctioner and they want someone who'll take the reins and, and be in control or they might have someone in their lives that also is kind of superficial and really um, doesn't know, doesn't want, you know, conflict avoidant, um, you know, Barbie and Ken or whatever would be the 2020 equivalent of that. That's certainly outdated. But um, and then it's the lucky ones that have that partner who said, I've been with you for 12 years and I've never seen you cry. Or I, when your best friend moved away, I, you, you seem chipper, you know, and I, I don't get it. I, I'm tr I want to know you and I don't even feel like I know you. And those are the people who will write me and say, how do I approach this person? You know, because I think this definitely describes him or her. And um, how, how can I approach it? How, what can I say or do? Yeah. And the, yeah. Uh, how, what are some of the stages to sort of healing PhD? Uh, how can somebody um, sort of, I, I understand that like people can definitely diagnose themselves um, in the beginning part of your book. And I know that in the second part, um, there are some methods that you sort of lay out to start to, to heal. Um, yes. Also, you could talk about that. Of course. I'd be delighted to. I have to tell a funny story. I was kind of a storyteller as you can tell by now, but uh so I was writing this book and, you know, and New Harbinger was interested in it. They said, well, we want to buy the book, but you have to come up with a treatment strategy. We don't just want you to describe it. And by the way, you have two weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said two weeks. Oh, my Lord. And so um, 
I got up the next morning and thought, what in the heck am I going to do? And I just thought about the people that I'd seen and actually some of the things I do with everyone. And so I just applied it to perfectionism or to destructive perfectionism, I should say. Again, constructive perfectionism is just fine. Um, so the stages I came up with, one was, um, first, it's just you have to be conscious of it. You have to know it's a problem. I mean, that's what the first half of the book is all about. You know, our first three chapters is what is it and how do you know if this applies to you? And what are those core traits? The second one is commitment. And we've mentioned that some too, in that there are so many hurdles to beginning to see this. So you know it's a problem, but then what do you do about it? And what, how do you face your fear? If you can't even feel your feelings, how do you face your fear? Mm -hmm. And how do you face wanting to do it perfectly? And how do you face, um, uh, you know, I had a woman tell me she's still in, uh, well, yeah, she's still in practice with me, uh, in, in treatment with me. And she said, you know, I thought this was something I could knock out in a couple of months. I said, well, well, it's probably take a little longer than that. Um, this is a lifelong, I mean, I'm, you know, um, I don't, I don't think you'll be here two years from now, but if you keep working at this rate, you know, we will just need to, um, you, you'll get better. So obviously that sense of commitment and actually renewing commitment, any kind of change in mental and emotional functioning is scary. Um, even though familiar may be painful, it's still pain that you know you can tolerate because you have a history with it. And so anytime you make a, 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 not a sizable change in your thinking or your behavior, then it's going to be really scary because it's unfamiliar. Um, so anyway, I, so that you have to keep on committing and recommitting and recommitting. The third stage is confrontation. And what I mean by that is, you really have to um, look at the rules you're living by in your life. This is very cognitive behavioral um, theory. And it's, you know, what am I telling myself I must do, should do, ought to do, have to do, always need to do, never need to do. And do those really apply or were they built and created during that time when I was uh, building this strategy and this facade of having to be, always in charge, always in control. And if they are, then how do I challenge those things? And they can be as, as small as, you know, my mother, who was very much like this. Um, you know, I don't think my dad ever saw her without makeup on. I mean, she'd get up at an incredibly early hour. Now she was, you know, a, a mom and wife in the 1950s and 60s. And so that was a common problem. But still, I mean, she did it. And she never changed. And so, because she thought there was one way to look and, and she had to look that way always. So there's confrontation of those rules. Then there's connection and these don't happen lockstep. I mean, they're all commingled and entangled, but the connection is where you're trying to learn how to feel those feelings. And this is where mindfulness really comes in because a lot of people uh, realize an emotion is there. But again, as we were talking about, they've got it compartmentalized so rigidly that to pull it out is, is frightening and, and awkward. It's just awkward. And so as they begin and, uh, and be, become more mindful 
of their of their emotions and just kind of sit with them. I often talk about sitting with an emotion. You don't have to work through it. You don't have to process it. When you're uncomfortable with it, you just sit with it and just kind of be in it. Um, and if you now, I wish I should state to all your listeners, if you have severe trauma in your life, this is not work you should do by yourself. Okay, because if you were abused sexually or emotionally or physically and you've held on to those secrets, you really need to work with a, a trauma specialist or a therapist who has experience in guiding you through that. So this book is not meant as a as a um, substitute for that kind of work. In fact, throughout the book, I say it's sort of ad nauseum. If this is getting too hard, go to a therapist. If this is getting too hard, go to a therapist. So. Um, but they, there can be huge breakthroughs there. I, I, I believe firmly that um, you can get hope from having insight. Insight is very helpful. It helps you connect the dots. When you figure something out, you have an aha moment of some kind. Where you really feel hope is when you see your behavior change where you can feel an emotion that you told yourself you could never feel, where you could admit that something hurt or made you angry or was just wrong. And you've never admitted that to yourself. Those things can be huge, huge. Um, and then the fifth strategy is again, you get hope from behavior change. How do you then, how do you start making those changes? I give some specific uh, examples and recommendations of things to try Again, they can be small things. They don't have to be gigantic steps, but say you're someone who, who never, you think it's selfish to put yourself first. Again, there's that counting your blessings thing. So, you know, put an alarm on your phone and randomly. And when your phone goes off, say, what, what, what's important to me right now? What is, what would I, do I need to stretch? Do I need to go get a cup of coffee? Do I need to take a break? Do I, what, what do I need right now? And just reminding yourself to learn how to think about yourself. Um, you know, and it's small things like that, but those are every, for every trait, the 10 traits, I have some recommendations of what to try and how to begin to change your thinking. Um, because this is a dynamic or a syndrome that you can change. I have seen people do it. Um, and People ask me, am I a perfectionist um, or do I, do, and I, I have been certainly in my lifetime. Um, in fact, one of the really hard parts of writing this book, I, I was stymied for a week. I just sat staring at my laptop and because I said, I, this is not, it's, it's not going to be, as soon as it's published, it's gonna, I'm going to find something's wrong with it. I'm going to either learn something I didn't know, or I'm going to really think, no, this isn't even right. You know, I'm going to contradict myself. And I had to, and so I sat down, and I wrote about that. I wrote two long paragraphs. They were actually in the book about re revealing how vulnerable that made me feel. I was going to do a, an imperfect book about perfectionism. And I just had to, again, sit with that and think, all right, I, okay, go forward. <laughs> That's fine. And so if you can learn how to do that and give yourself permission to, to not have to be perfect all the time, then that is really so vital. Um, 
I'll go back to those 60 volunteers. Um, something else some publishing houses asked me was, well, why, if someone is hiding this, why would they buy a book? Mm-hmm. And so I asked, why would you buy this book? And I got two answers. The first answer had to do with the term perfectly hidden depression. And the people said, um, I was intrigued by the term. It hit something in the core of me that I didn't think, you know, I, I didn't know what it was. The second thing was because we would not wish this life on anybody else. You know, Leon, you said, you know, I have been living this and, you know, what that psychiatrist didn't see was all the ramifications of having of what living this was doing to you. And I'm sorry about that. But there are definitely ramifications and consequences. And so, you know, it is lonely and it's despairing. And the research, there's some wonderful research going on in Canada and Great Britain about this, really. And the research is showing that we all know that suicide rates are going up exponentially. So is perfectionism. And so is the so are the links between perfectionism and suicidality. Right. They are growing. Yeah, which actually isn't surprising. And just going back to that psychiatrist, I mean, like, look, nothing against him as a, as a person. I obviously don't know him well, but as a practitioner, what really, um, first of all, like he was actually 20 minutes late to the um, to the meeting, which I really didn't like. And then um, the other thing was the notion that I, so my thing is like, if, if let's say I present, you know, if I'm not talking about depression, right? Like, let's say I see Alan or something and, you know, I'm like, hey, Alan's like, how are you doing? And I say, I'm doing great, right? And it seems like I'm doing great, right? And then let's say, you know, something happens where I, no, no, I become suicidal or something, but I wouldn't blame Alan for that because how could he have known? The yeah. difference, right. And the difference between he and the psychiatrist was that I told him that something was wrong. And exactly. in his, right. And his response was like, eh, I don't really believe you. Like, he's like, well, you seem really well. So, you know, maybe, so I, he didn't say this, but the inference that I took away from it was that you don't really know what's going on with you. I know you might think you're depressed, but if you saw for what I saw, right, you would actually see that you're wrong. So he, you know, kind of sent me away. And so the problem with, I guess, I don't know how common this is, so I can't really say for sure, but I think the problem, especially when it comes to psychiatry, I don't think this happens much with therapy. And I don't mean to be too black and white about this, but I do think this is generally true that a lot of times when therapists are seeing people, they actually want to get down to the core of what's going on with the person. They really have an interest in the curiosity. Whereas with the psychiatrist, Psychiatrist, I mean, it's like if you kind of don't tell them or if you tell them in a way that's not obvious, they're just really quick to just say, OK, next person, kind of like, I don't know, a judge waiting for, you know, the next person on the docket. It's like, OK, case, you know, case dismissed or whatever. Next person, let's let's kind of let's just let's get the show going. That was what I got from the psychiatrist that he actually didn't care to find out who I was. He just needed to see if he could medicate me or not. And if I didn't meet the criteria, I was OK. I mean, if something really happens, obviously, you know, come see me later. Um, the problem with that was at that time in my life, because this was um, so this is 2016. I think this was like my last year in grad school. I was actually pretty suicidal. So that's something that oh I didn't, my gosh. yeah. So that was something that I didn't tell anybody. So, I mean, I ended up getting through it. The relationships that I had with several therapists at the time were really great. I had like a good support network, but the point is if I didn't have any of that and that psychiatrist missed that, that technically would have been on him because I told him like, Hey, I'm really struggling with depression. And he's like, Oh nah, you're okay. 
Very aptly put, I, I was lucky enough to interview Terry Cheney, who has written a bunch of books about her bipolar disorder. And um, she is, you know, she was a, a, an entertainment attorney. In fact, she was um, Michael Jackson's uh, attorney at one time. And she said that even she, who, you know, had, who's very, you know, very verbal and, and has this hypomania a lot of her life, that she would go to psychiatrists and doctors and they say, oh, no, you're just, you know, you're so bubbly and, you know, that kind of thing. So you're right. Now, I don't want to, <laughs> I really think, a good psychiatrist would have said, so what am I not seeing? I mean, I'm seeing somebody who's very telling me or looking very happy. And yet, you know, you tell me you're not doing well, help me understand that. That's what a good psychiatrist would have done. I don't want to totally say psychiatrist or, um, you know, not caring that that wouldn't be fair to them at all. Uh, just like a therapist can, I, I started the book with the case example of a woman that I saw that I had diagnosed with anxiety. And I got this call from um, one of her family members and, um, you know, sure enough, she was, well, I, I've never done this before and I never did it again, but, you know, he asked me to go to their home and, and check on her. And I happened to know where she lived. It wasn't far from my house and I was off and I just got this feeling in my gut. And so I did. He was out. Of, he was driving back. And sure enough, he told me how to get into her house. It felt very strange. And I was calling her name. Well, sure enough, she was in her bed um, trying to kill herself. And um, so, you know, I was wrong. Uh, I, I was wrong. And there were there, there just were things I didn't see. Um, and she was a very successful person here in the community. Um, had two kids. I mean, good marriage. You know, there was just a lot going on with her that pointed in another direction. And um, I woke up at that point. Now, I wish I could uh, tell you this Disney tale of, oh, that opened my eyes. And I, you know, but it made an impression on me. And maybe, who knows exactly, that was about, I'm going to say that was about 13 years ago, something like that. You know, I don't know whether that had something to do with me developing these ideas or not, but I bet it did. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more synergistic than to think that, you know, that wouldn't have anything to do with one another. But certainly I, I use that example as something that was kind of an aha moment for me as a therapist. So um, I, it, it is hard, I mean, to... When, when a professional mental health professional looks at you and says, well, you don't look like this to me. And because they, they are unfortunately far too rigidly connected to those classic criteria. There was a guy, a researcher who actually was one of the first researchers. His name was Sidney Blatt, B-L-A-T-T. -T. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, his work. And, and he would talk about perfectionism years ago, like in the 1930s, I think. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we've got to stop seeing depression as, um, I'm not going to quote him very well, uh, it, it, is, it is more a behavioral uh, uh, pattern than it is, or perfectionism. And, and, and he was saying the 1930s version of what I'm saying, which is 
um, you know, we need to look beyond these criteria because there's some people that are not going to fit the criteria for classic depression that are depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least the way I read his material, that's that's what it seemed like to me. Um, And there's one thing we should mention. There are actually three different kinds of research perfectionism. One is self-oriented perfectionism, which means you, you expect yourself to be perfect. Um, there's other oriented perfectionism, meaning you expect all the people around you to be perfect. And then there's socially prescribed perfectionism. And that's the one that's the most dangerous. All of them are dangerous, but, um, or t- have the potential for being dangerous. But socially prescribed perfectionism means that you are always on, you're hyper vigilant to meet the expectations of others. And you, so you stay on this treadmill that's going faster and faster and faster because, you know, maybe you're the person who raised $100,000 for some nonprofit last year. And what do people do? As soon as it's over, they go, we got to get you to do it next year and we're going to make even more money. You know, it's like, okay, that's another expectation. That's something else I've got to do. And you can stay on this for so long that it's, you know, you, you don't know what just taking a breath is like and deciding that you can take something off your plate when um, you have, you know, you put another thing on it. Um, Go ahead. Well, and it's, and I think it's also terrible because like in terms of the culture, so um, socially prescribed perfectionism, although, I mean, it's definitely obviously, as you mentioned before, that it can be sort of um, something that's sort of only internal or something that's not really connected to reality, but obviously it can actually also be connected to reality and sort of quite a good fit. And so when I read that. Yep. And then when I read that, I remember thinking, um, so I'm going to say this and I, I know some of my grad school professors might watch the show, but I still think it's worth noting. Um, so look, I definitely was to blame for some of the things that I went through there. Um, because I technically was an asshole at times. And when I didn't get the grades I wanted, I certainly huffed and puffed. And I, I, I was definitely responsible for like the discord between the relationships that some of my professors had. But the other thing is when it comes to somebody like me who already had that version of perfectionism, that self, you know, kind of self-imposed perfectionism, Couple that with the expectations of graduate school, that I would say, you know, kind of the combination and the conjunction of the two, that led me to that kind of sort of, um, I mean, I would say, well, let's say the perfectly hidden depression was already there, but then it became after some point major depression because after a while I just kind of collapsed. So the thing is from the expectations and what was interesting to me is even though this was a therapy program and you would expect that professors who, you know, kind of are like experts in psychology would sort of understand what their uh, students were going through. I actually didn't get that. So um, a lot of the times when the work wasn't up to par, like, yes, I beat myself up about it. Yes. I acted like a child, non-questionably, but they weren't very empathic. So the kind of responses that we received were, well, this is graduate school. We don't really know why you guys are complaining or what you expected or what you wanted. So what happens is for, I mean, kind of, again, going back to just like the um, expectations of the culture on the whole is that a lot of times what happens is, especially in America, that a lot of us, especially as kids, you know, college students, graduate students, the self-imposed perfectionism is really a reflection of the perfectionism that's expected or the perfection that's expected of us in our society and in our culture. So a lot of the stuff that kind of, or a lot of the um, factors that lead to particular symptoms of depression, or even us hiding our depression, like in this case, really come from our society. So a lot of times we felt that we can't even tell our professors what's going on, because if we did, they would just kind of shoo us and dismiss us and say, look, kid, like you're in graduate school. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Like, get your shit together. Yeah, exactly. I got a divorce during uh, graduate school. And I remember being very proud 
that um, it was our last year and they were having a party for us. They didn't <laughs> small <laughs> uh, anyway. And someone said something about my divorce. And one of my professors uh, looked at me and goes, you got divorced. I mean, I hit all that. I mean, I, I, and in fact, many people have said it's fairly ironic that PhD is also Berkeley and depression. So um, yeah, you're, I, I, well said, I wish I'd put that in the book. Cause yeah, you're right. I mean, these the social expectations and uh, work expectations and um, sometimes familial expectations as well um, are very, very real. Um, and so in, and, and yet a guy comes to mind uh, um, that I worked with uh, and two people come to mind that I worked with that were very scared to implement some of this stuff uh, in their work environment. But one of them had been uh, a leader of a team and people were always asking to get off his team because uh, he was a, he was a taskmaster. I mean, he was very authoritarian and he cared and everything, but he was very perfectionistic. And so he went to his supervisor after we had done some work and he said, I need to be retrained in how to be a leader. Hmm. And so they sent him to some, some, I got a hair in my, eye. Uh, they sent him to be trained. And um, sure enough, what happened was that people started asking to be on his team because his method of work was so different. Um and he came in with this big grin on his face and he goes, so here I was scared of this. And actually, when I'm more vulnerable with myself and I, I am a, you know, not such of a taskmaster with myself, I'm, I can turn around and give that gift to other people. And they are even more productive. So um, and then another woman comes to mind who did a lot of work. Um, she worked from home back pre-COVID. And um, she said, you know. I always, when I was about to have a conversation with my supervisor, I always felt like I had to know all the answers to his questions. And in fact, I had to stay in front of him in the conversation. He would be saying something to me and I would be clicking along thinking, what's he going to say next? And what's the answer? You know, so never in the moment, always, you know, having to second guess and live in the future. And she said, it is it is incredible how much more I'll use the word productive because nothing else is coming to mind at the moment. I am because I am in the moment. I'm actually having a conversation with my supervisor and I don't have to be a step in front of him. And she said, it's amazing how I'm not losing his respect. In fact, if anything, I'm gaining his respect and my own because, um, I, I'm still meeting my quotas. I'm still doing all that stuff, but I am so much more engaged in the process. I don't have to look like I'm in control of everything. Yeah. So now maybe those are, you know, again, I, I can well imagine um, uh, some people listening to this and go, oh, no, that wouldn't happen at my work. And so um, I know as a therapist, when I, have someone sitting in front of me and I, or, a, or an interviewee, <laughs> like right now, if my, if my ego is involved in making this the best therapy session ever, I, I do crummy therapy because my ego is involved. And yet if I say, I'm just going to be here in this moment with this person, 
or I'm going to be in this interview right now, I, I'm not as I'm not concerned with whether it's the best if I'm their best guest you've ever had on. That's not the point. The point is we're having this discussion and I'm learning from the discussion and learning from the two of you. And so, you know, that is so much more fulfilling. It's a whole different way of living your life. Yeah, and that, and that true listening, as opposed to having an expectation, is what paradoxically builds a rapport, which then creates an even better conversation, right? I mean, um, you would think that, oh, it's good to have that expectation, like, oh, uh, this is going to be the best work I've ever done, or this is going to be the best thing I've ever espoused, right? And that's all well and good, but if you allow yourself to just really truly be there, truly listen, truly seek first to understand than to be understood. The exchange that that produces is way better than when you have an expectation set out or you're trying to meet certain goals. Right. I, I think so. Uh, I, I, both of y'all are making some great points, um, at least from my perspective. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I, it's, it's, um, we have a saying in Arkansas. I mean, I don't know what the New York version of it would be, but if you've got one foot in the past and the other in the present, you're pissing on today. So <laughs> that's really good. That is actually really good. <laughs> so you know, I don't want to piss on today. So you know, really trying to be um, who I know to be, who I try to be right now. I mean, I, of course, you get self conscious sometimes. I actually have panic disorder. I have performance anxiety. And when I first started doing these interviews, oh my gosh, I had to take some, you know, I had to take a little calmer down or not a benzo. I hate those, but um, just a little uh, beta blockers, what it's called. I don't have to do that now. I've done too many interviews, but um, you know, so I'm very well aware that you can be self-conscious and that anxiety can be just right there. Um, so it, it takes um, some practice, um, but you, you know, you, you can get accustomed to being that, letting go that sense of um, self-consciousness. Yeah. And what's also interesting is paradoxically, the more you sort of espouse or the more you say on a podcast, like as a host, um, it's obviously different for the person who's being interviewed. But as the more you say as a host, I think the worse the dialogue is and the worse the conversation is. So it's like you feel like you have something to prove, right? You really need to have like, you know, something to offer or something to put on the table. Whereas for the most part, if your audience is listening to your episode, they're really not listening to you per se. They want you to ask <laughs> the right questions. So whoever the guest is can answer them, but they don't need you to say the thing that they want to hear from the guests. But the thing is, obviously, when you're like starting out in the beginning and you're thinking, oh, I have to sound brilliant. I have to impress the guests. I have to impress my audience. And you can actually impress them just by the questions you ask. You don't have to like be all knowing about the topic that you guys are talking about. That's what the guest is for. Yeah. 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 Um, I was really nervous. Um, last year, I, I was blown away, flabbergasted, actually, that um, Lewis Howes, who, of course, has a great podcast, um, who's a really good interviewer, um, uh, asked me to be on his show, uh, his producer, like that. He, he had not read the book. He was one of those people that <laughs> interviewed me and not read the book. When he told me right before the interview, he said, I'm sorry, I haven't read your book. I've been sick. And I said, that's okay. And we, but his questions were really wonderful. Um, so, Anyway, um, so I was on it and I had started, I don't usually do interviews on my show, but I, uh, had, I had gotten contacted by John Moe, who wrote The Hilarious World of Depression, which is, gosh, if y'all get him on, he's an incredible guest. 
And so, you know, when John Moe says, will you interview me? I, I sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you betcha I'll interview you. And, um, so I've done like three, but I know exactly what you're talking about in myself. I was like, oh, now should I ask this now? Should I ask this now? Should I ask this now? And, uh, I, you know, it was, um, it was hard not to do that. Very hard not to interject my own myself. And so I, I, I'm only going to do it like once a month or something. Maybe I'll get better. <laughs> yeah. Something that I thought that was like really helpful. And I'm going off of the fact that this person is highly successful. So something that I'm sure you've heard it and learned it too um, from the Joe Rogan podcast. So the way he kind of frames it is that when he's interviewing a guest, he tries to look at it from the perspective of the audience member. Like, what is it that the audience would want to learn from this person? And what is it that I want to learn from this person? So instead of, so what I love about Rogan is that he actually doesn't do the things that I was describing earlier. He doesn't try to put himself out there as an expert. He literally just asks a bunch of questions. He says, oh, here's this interesting topic. What do I want to know about it? Here, you're telling me this thing. Well, what about that thing, right? Is it possible that maybe this is true? And they have this really great dialogue where Rogan never seems like he's, um, he, he never seems pretentious, which is what I love about his show. And yeah. I guess that's like the ideal, I guess, for all of us as podcasters, right? To figure out a way how to sort of seem knowledgeable, but also not do it in a way that you're kind of trying to be pompous and trying to show off how like intelligent you are. Yeah, yeah. that's the truth. Um, you know, y'all said in the intro that I've been, I started doing this because of wanting to wanting people to realize what, what does a psychologist talk like? I mean, you know, are they really airy and, you know, warm and fuzzy and, you know, are they, did they have anything interesting to say or are they just repeating? I mean, so that's why I started the podcast and gosh, if I tried to sound like an expert on everything, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be modeling what a relationship with a, with a real life therapist is like. So that's what I try to do most of the time on, on self-work. And that's what I tried to do during the book, writing the book. Um, and by the way, I really, really appreciated you mentioning that part about your writing habits and kind of how you fall into the trap of, well, you know, if I don't, if I kind of take some time later on, you know, my, I might come up with something else or there might be some wisdom that I'm missing that I can mention later on. So interestingly, I was actually, I showed that quote to one of my friends. She's a like published a very, I guess like she's doing really well in her field. So she's a published author and she was like, oh my God, I experienced this all the time. And this is a person who in her field is really prominent. Like she's pretty yeah. like well-established. And so for me, I was like, wow. And I feel that way too, because every time, so I have like a blog and every time I sort of publish something, I'm always thinking about the parts that I miss. And then I really get upset with myself and I become obsessed because I'm like, oh, now I have to add this other part or here's this mistake <laughs> that I made, or here's some way that I changed my thinking, or here's this really important example that if I use there, somebody would have probably understood what the hell I was talking about. So what I loved about that is here you are obviously as an expert on this particular topic. And even for you, you know that you can't even know everything about it, even being an expert. So going back to that sort of that bar and that threshold of being an expert, it doesn't mean you have to know everything about something for you to be called that. So it's like the wisdom or the knowledge doesn't have to be at 100%. And I mean, I like I said, y'all, uh, y'all have already talked about today some things I think God, that would have been an interesting mm -hmm. tack to take. And, and you're right. I, uh, I almost didn't start blogging because I just didn't think I was an expert. And this woman who has been sort of my guru around here said, um, what do you think the uh, Internet's d definition of an expert is? And I said, I don't know, like 20 years. And she said, how about five, five <laughs> years of doing what you do? Couldn't you consider yourself an expert? And at that point, I had done it for about 20 years. And so she really um but, you know, I have not been studying perfectionism for five years. I mean, well, yes, I have for five years. That's about it. So um, 
but there's so much more to learn and there's all kinds of uh, research going on. And, um, you know, there, I, I think the, the, what concerns me some is there are several workbooks who've done extremely well on, it's usually there's one, Sharon Martin wrote one, the CBT workbook for perfectionists or something. There's Stephen Guy's uh, wrote one, how to be perfectly imperfect or something like that. Um, my concern about those books, um, I have the Stephen Guy's one. I have seen excerpts of Sharon's book. My take on things is, you know, you have to understand the why. You, you can get rid of the behavior, but if you really want to pull out the weed, you have to get it at its roots mm-hmm. because it can very quickly reestablish itself. So um, what I hope my, the, what I have to say in my particular message is, you know, you've got to explore the why first um, along with changing some of your behaviors, which again, I've already said that leads to hope. So um and I guess there's a there's an argument for the fact that if you change the behaviors, that you will begin to figure out what kept them so well entrenched. Um, and so I guess you can go about things another way other than figuring out the why first. But um, uh, anyway, so I just disagreed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I loved about your book in particular is when you ask or when you think about what sort of messages the person is taking away from their environment. So a silly example that I'm going to mention, because I know that we talk about this film and then interestingly enough, a client of mine brought it up too. And I had to say like, wait, I, do you remember the end of it? So I don't know if you've ever seen Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell. No, I don't think I have. Oh, interesting. Okay, so he plays like a race car driver. And so he's pretty much, so the way he kind of develops in the story is initially his father is like this um, guy who's like kind of wishy-washy, struggling with alcoholism. And so he brings him into career day. And then so in career day, he's like, well, if you're not first, you're last, right? And then he's like, yeah, if you're not first, you're last. That's the message he took away. So he spent his whole life living like he has to be the best, like number one in everything. He has to possess the most, the best house. He has to be number one in his field. He has to be married to the most beautiful woman in the sort of county or whatever. And then so finally he reconnects with his dad and his dad has this moment where he literally just like abandons the family again and he runs away. And so Will Ferrell's character, whose name is Ricky Bobby, he ends up chasing after him. And so as he's chasing after him, he's like, dad, like, what are you doing? He's like, I love you. And his dad says something like, ah, you know, I can't handle any of this. He's like, you know, I'm worthless. You don't need me. And then he says something along the lines of, well, like, no, you're not worthless. He's like, because of this thing you told me as a kid, he's like, I became super successful. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? What did I tell you? And he's like, you remember when you butched career day? And he's, you know, you told me if you're not first, you're last. He's like, I based my whole life off of that. He's like, if you're not first, you're last. I said that? He's like, that's the <laughs> dumbest thing I ever heard. He's like, why would you listen to me? He's like, I was a drunk idiot and you were an idiot for listening to me. You could be second, you could be third, you could be fourth. Hell, you could even be fifth. He's like, first, you're last. And then so he's walking away. He's like, what the hell? He's like, I based my whole life off of that. And so why that's always so funny to me. And what's funny also is that I had a session with a client about this yesterday. And he tells me, well, I don't know if you've ever seen Talladega Nights, but he's like, you know, that statement really sticks with me if you're not first or last. And I'm like, dude, did you see the end of the movie? His dad completely recanted. He said, no, no, that's stupid. Don't listen to that. That is the dumbest thing ever. So what's so interesting about the why there or the messages that we take away is that a lot of the messages don't make sense when you understand where they're coming from and why the person said it. So what was one of the most important things to me as like, uh, like, let's say myself as a patient? 
person. I remember when I had this really, um, this really, I guess, profound therapy session with my own therapist. And so um, whatever, I mean, I'll tell the story. I don't really like telling it, but I'll tell it. Um, when I was a kid, there was a, there was a, there was a point in, uh, I was like in math class or something. And so the teacher there was like a huge asshole. And then I remember to him, I remember when, um, He's like, you know, hey, guys, like who did like the homework or whatever? You know, I want you guys to come up one by one and show it to me. And then so I come up to him and I was like, hey, I actually didn't do the work. So he took this really personally. And he says to me something along the lines of like, wow, kid, he's like, I don't know what you think you're doing with your life, but you're not going to get by on your looks. And, you know, to me, the inference is I'm obviously unattractive. So I held on to that. Right. And then I had this, uh, this session with my therapist. And then so she the way kind of she reframed it. Well, first she was like, OK, what did the message mean to you? You know, we talked about that. And the way she reframed it was she said, yeah, that's like not about you. Right. It's whatever this person was going through. Like you already know his personality style. You know that he kind of like picked on little things from, let's say, from kids at the time that he figured out like what your weaknesses were. And if he was angry with you, he would use it against you. So, you know, putting that all together to me was really important because for me at that time, right. And I'm sure it wasn't just this. I'm sure there were many factors, but my standard of beauty was like severely excessive where I really believed if you weren't like the best looking person, that there was no way that you could be loved. And so I can't say that that's the message that gave me that inference, but I'm sure it contributed to it heavily. So for me to understand that, that, that like, this is what was going on with the person, that message kind of lost its meaning. Just like when Ricky Bobby eventually realized that like his dad was drunk and saying something that was completely asinine and nonsense. And didn't even really believe what he was saying. Eventually, I believe he was saying, eventually it kind of got him to the point where he's like, wow, I can't believe I wasted my whole life on this stupid message. So what I love going back to your book, what I loved about the idea of looking at messages and the why is that we have to, as best as we can, obviously, we have to try our best to figure out, number one, whether the message makes sense, whether it's actually legitimate, whether yes, you're only lovable if you're first. And if you're not, obviously you're worthless. Like, you know, these other 99% of the public or the people, or is it that this message was coming? from a person that was going through their own struggles and really didn't sort of think to kind of consider how number one, they would affect you and didn't even really consider what the logic of their message actually was. Wow. I need to watch that movie <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I often, um, when I'm working with couples, but sometimes within uh, it works with individuals as well. I'll say, so, you know, you're, you're taking something very personally that someone said to you. And the question is, what do you know about that person that they might say that or believe that that has nothing to do with you? What do you know about them has nothing to do with you that would explain their behavior and what, what they said, did, whatever. And, you know, when you, when you come to grips with that and realize, well, um, you know, my mother said this or my sister or my uncle or my grandfather or my best friend or whatever, you know, you can begin to figure out what does have to do with me and what do I need to claim that has to do with me. And the other 85, 90% of times, the time when it has actually has nothing to do with you and it has much more to do with the other person. So yeah, I, I would agree with that for sure. Have you ever encountered, um, Maybe this is relatable. Something I used to do back in the day is when I first learned about being present to the moment, meditation, ego, non-reactivity, all of that. Um, it, was, it was beautiful. It was like, oh, okay, great. Like I opened this up, this whole new world up to me. It's fantastic. And then I started doing something that um, must have been uh, per uh, perfectly hidden depression, actually, which is uh, I, I would use getting present to the moment or being mindful, but not correctly mindful to sort of escape my thoughts ah. and to feel good because I'm not thinking anything. 
So I would try mm. to be in that state as much as possible. Hmm. But it's like as if I was lying to myself, not letting certain things that were hidden be felt or to sit with them as you kind of as, as you actually uh, highlight in your book, which I think is something I really love about that distinction that you make or not distinction, rather how you highlight what mindfulness done right is like. Yeah, I'm not a mindfulness expert. I mean, at all. I, I did while I was writing the book, keep up a pretty decent, regular sense of meditation because it was really important um, and did really help me out. Um, but I, I do love John Kabat-Zinn and then read, read his stuff. And so um, do y'all hear that noise? Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know if it's on my end. It's there. Yeah, and it's gone. Like, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Wait, no, it's back. Wait, no, it's gone. <laughs> okay. Well, it was interesting. Um, but I, so I think that's fascinating that what you caught yourself doing was almost using meditation and mindfulness for escape rather than for deepening, you know, or for um, what is it that Hobbit Zen says? And actually, there's a wonderful book called The Mindful Way Through Depression that he and others wrote. Um, something like it's, mindfulness is is not about what you listen to it's how you listen or something like that it's it's it changes the process so um i unfortunately have let that habit go and i'm you know i'm trying to uh, rejuvenate it um but i i think it's a, a incredible field and it is important as far as uh i mean being mindful is you know is it's literally a way of looking at yourself uh, in a, in again, a deeper way. And so I think it's very important for people who are into the busyness of their lives to learn how to be more mindful. Maybe not. Uh, I did. I was lucky enough to go to a workshop that John Kabat-Zinn did in Little Rock and it, Little Rock from where I live is about three and a half hours on the interstate. So, and I, so I'd had two and a half days of a sitting meditation and a walking meditation and this meditation and that meditation. I'd eaten the raisin very slowly, like he has everybody do. And um, so I got in my car to drive home and I almost had a couple of wrecks because I was so relaxed. <laughs> I remember stopping and at uh, like a 7-Eleven or something and getting a Mountain Dew, which of course is packed with caffeine because I was so relaxed. I mean, it was a wonderful way of being, but I couldn't function. I, I needed my anxiety to be higher than that to, to drive. So I think people who can live in that really are, um, it's, it's wonderful to be able to do that. I'm not one of those people. I, I, I would love to work toward it, but um, I'm sadly not one of those people. Yeah. So if there is like, I guess, I mean, I know it's hard to sort of chalk it up to this, but there's sort of, if there is like one or even maybe let's say several important takeaways for you, right. Of understanding and learning about perfectly hidden depression, what would those be? Hmm. Takeaways for a reader to come away with or. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's say for a reader, for somebody okay. who's, let's say just discovering the topic for the first time. Okay. Um. I think the thing that I would love for people to read the book or have some exposure to the concept is that um, when they look at themselves with, with a different set of lens, 
they can find things about themselves that are, they can find their self-acceptance. I say a couple of times in the book, the antidote to destructive perfectionism or to perfectly hidden depression is self-acceptance. And what I mean by that is that um, your strengths nor your vulnerabilities define you. I've used this example before. I, I sadly, again, using that word, have been married three times. The first two times were in my 20s and were very chaotic and bad, bad, bad choices. I've now been married for 30 years and it's it works. So, um, and I have three letters after my name. I have a PhD. So I've had three divorce, three marriages and three letters. I don't think either one of those things defines me more than the other one does. They are both facts about me. I'm proud of one. I'm not proud of the other. Um, but, it, and would I, would there be some people who would judge me as soon as they heard that I've been married three times? Would they say, well, I would never go to her. Yes, of course. Um, but I can't do anything about that. I can't control that. But what I can control is whether I accept those things or not whether I actively on in 2020 shame myself for those and, and for those divorces or marriages and, and carry that around with me, you know, I can let go of that shame. I can work through that shame. I can sit with it uh, when it raises its head. And, but that, but I, but that doesn't mar or, or remove my strengths. And to me, that's what self-acceptance is. And if that is what someone walks away with, that it really is possible to have compassion for yourself and to be self-accepting. That doesn't mean that you're, you, you're don't um, accept responsibility. It doesn't, it just means you are, you are in a space of um, self-compassion and, understanding and I, I I think if if there's anything important it is that. Right. And what's so interesting about what you're saying is that within those failures, you know, seeming failures, there's also strengths too, because or there are also strengths too. Because it takes a strong person to walk away from a marriage and to say, okay, well this is a failure. Maybe I'm even a failure. So one could say on the one hand, obviously they were failures because they were marriages that didn't work out. But then on the other hand, it took strong will obviously to get out of them and to say like, no, I messed up, I fucked up, I made a mistake and I'm yeah. ready to move on. Yeah, you know, in um, I was when we moved to Fayetteville, I had I had never wanted to move back to a small town. I was a I loved the big city, and um, but we did, and but I also didn't think I would tell anyone about the other two marriages. It was just kind of like, oh well, you know, yeah, my husband and I've been together a long time, and um, I did as soon as someone was sitting on my couch and they were getting a divorce for the second time. And they looked at me and said, well, you know, you obviously wouldn't know what that was like. And I said, you know, you, you're about to join the club I've been a member of for a long time. Um, but I read a story. Maya Angelou was of course, Bill Clinton's um, poet laureate. And so I, I was blown away by her and um, I, uh, but I also was just out of graduate school and I didn't want to read any books. So I went to the bookstore and found her smallest book, which was called Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now. And it's a group of essays that she wrote. And in one of those essays, and I will probably crucify this description, but um, she basically got really drunk um, in a bar one night. And it was the same week that she'd won some like New Yorker of the week or something like that. And she made a complete ass out of herself. She sat down with all these men and 
ask them these drunken, slobby, you know, sloppy questions about why no man would love her and what was so wrong with her. And, and then she said, you know, you woke up the next morning wishing you could change your last name and move to Canada, basically is what she said. Um, and I put the book down. I literally was about to open my practice. So it was in 1992 and 93. And I said, this is who I want to be. I want to be just like this because if I am, if I can model that for my patients, my friends, my acquaintances, whatever, then maybe they'll feel more free to be vulnerable with me and to say these things that um, maybe are harder to say than recounting all the things that you've done in your life that are, you know, you, you deem beneficial or good. Um, and, and I've, I've really, I started trying to turn that boat around at that point because I realized how much I was personally hiding about myself. I certainly would not tell anybody I had panic disorder. Oh my God, no. So um, I made a decision then, and I won't say it was an easy process. It's been, I'm 66 now. And so that was, it's been a long time. I was 38 then. So, you know, it's been quite, quite a long process, but um Anyway, it's, 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 she really, she uh, was quite the model for me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Alan, any final sort of thoughts, questions before we go? Oh, yeah. If we wanted to follow your work or follow you on social media, uh, where could we find you? Sure. I'd love that. The, the self-work podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford is uh, on everywhere, Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts, um, Podbean, you name it. Um, my website is drmargaretrutherford.com and it has my weekly blog post, my, the podcasts, the book, uh, information, all of that stuff. Uh, I've been writing for five years, no gosh, eight years. So, uh, there are a lot of blog posts on there. Um, I'm on Instagram. I like Instagram. I, I, I will get on Twitter occasionally. Twitter isn't my thing. Uh, Pinterest, I'm there too. Um, I have somebody who kind of takes care of that for me because I, I, Pinterest isn't my thing either. But I like Instagram. I kind of like that. So what, what are your handles on Twitter and Instagram? Uh, on Twitter, it's Dr. Underscore Margaret on Twitter. And it's just Dr. Margaret Rutherford on Instagram. Awesome. So, I mean, before we go, we want to say thank you so much, not only for coming on, but also just for the work in general. Because sure, thank obviously, you. Obviously, it takes it takes a lot of courage to come out and sort of take these topics, especially in particular topics of medicine, of mental health, and sort of in some way flip them on their head. Obviously, I'm sure there's, I'm sure you've gotten a ton of criticism, especially by people in the establishment. Yeah, yeah, I, I have. Can, I, I can imagine that. So it takes a Who lot. Who are you to think you could come up with something like this? You know, and right. one clinician walked up to me. He goes, well, you know, we all know this exists. You just put a label on it. And I was like, okay. Oh, that psychiatrist <laughs> that I saw clearly didn't know. So that's interesting. <laughs> so and right, and then that also kind of begs the question of why didn't someone else put a label on it 20, 30 years ago? That's fair. Well, I, um, thank you. I'm getting tears in my eyes. Y'all are, it's very touching what you're saying. It, it did take some courage. I was very well aware that I was choosing to rock a boat. And, um, and so I have had some criticism. I've had criticism for people saying that I'm pathologizing something that's really a good skill to have. Um, 
And I think there may be people who don't realize the extent of the pain underneath and kind of like what we were talking about before, this is a spectrum. And if you're sort of mild on the spectrum or moderate on it, then it's not necessarily getting in the way of you having, uh, finding self-acceptance. The more symptoms you tend to have, uh, or more of those traits you tend to have, the more dangerous it's becoming. Uh, I do have a, um, an active column also on the on psychology today um, that I'm enjoying doing that. They invited me to do that last year. Um, but anyway, the podcast or y'all have been wonderful. If you ever come to Arkansas, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, come on down and call the hogs and, <laughs> that's our football team and so you gotta learn how to call the hogs <laughs> i just wanted to say very quick because uh, i know what we're ending off uh about that criticism about uh you pathologizing something that's like a good skill yeah. to have you addressed i mean you could anyone who has that kind of criticism can see how you address that in the book right because yeah. self-acceptance versus you not expressing what you're feeling or you putting away or locking away what you're feeling there is that distinction there. Self-acceptance is, is different than, uh, uh, than just keeping hidden what it is that, that you're feeling. It, it may disguised look like as if you're uh, coping with like a, like a bad feeling or something like that because you're not letting yourself feel it. You're trying to move on and be productive. But sure. that's different than actually dealing and facing what you actually have. And the other thing is like, it, first of all, as like psychologists and therapists and like mental health practitioners, like, first of all, we've always known that anything that's repressed is a bad thing. So <laughs> I'm even surprised that anybody's giving you criticism. Like, duh, like if yeah. you literally repress anything, like it's going to fuck you over in some way. So it's like, <laughs> even though in the short term, like, yes, it's a great coping strategy. In the long term, that shit is going to completely blow up in your face. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. Now, I do have a question to ask. Okay. So are y'all going to put my book on that little lineup of books? Oh, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I love can that. I, can I have a little free advertising, please? <laughs> Probably on to the left of the deep workbook. There you go. Okay. Well, I just wanted to, I, I'm going to tune in to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on. This was really awesome. Oh, sure. Thank y'all so much. Take care up there in New York. <laughs> Thank you. We'll take be in touch soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right. Awesome. That was really awesome. Yeah. Well, all right, guys. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. <laughs> and follow us on O4L Online Network. And you can find us at the O4L Online Network, obviously, at O4L Online Network.com under the STM podcast section up top. All right, guys, thanks again so much for watching and see you next time.